Hey, it's Amy, and I'm popping into the feed right now to tell you that I believe we're creating something together here on Threshold. You, me, and the whole team that makes this show. We're making a meeting ground for people who want to think and feel and learn about this unbelievably fascinating and beautiful planet. It's a pretty special place in the audio landscape, but we need your support for it to grow and thrive. There are lots of ways you can help. You can make a donation and also make introductions. Mention the show to a friend or a coworker. Share an episode with your network. Your recommendation is how more people will find this community and join the conversation. Learn more about how you can help at thresholdpodcast.org. And thank you so much for listening. Welcome to Threshold Conversations. I'm Amy Martin, and today I'm talking to Dr. Michelle Fournay and some humpback whales. Michelle Fournay is an acoustic ecologist with the Cornell Bioacoustics Research Program. She studies how marine organisms use sound to communicate, to detect predators and prey, and to engage with their environments. One creature she's focused on is the humpback whale. She's recorded hours and hours of the underwater sounds they make in Southeast Alaska. That's what we're hearing here. Dr. Fournay is trying to figure out what all of these sounds might mean and how the whale's acoustic environment is being impacted by human activities like tourism, shipping, and oil and gas exploration. Last March, all of those human activities came to a screeching halt because of the coronavirus pandemic. And although Michelle would never have wished for this global health crisis, of course, the sharp decrease in ocean noise may provide her and other acoustic ecologists with a totally unexpected opportunity to study how marine animals respond to something increasingly rare, a quiet ocean. Michelle Fournay, thank you so much for joining me on Threshold Conversations. I thank you so much for having me. It's very lovely to be here. So our oceans are getting noisier and that affects marine life, including many kinds of whales. Can you help us get a clearer picture of this, put a finer point on it? How much noisier are the oceans today compared to, say, 50 years ago? Do we even know that? That is a complicated question. So I'm going to try and break it down and simplify it to the best of my ability. The short answer is much noisier. In some parts of the ocean, we see a doubling of sound every 10 years. So um, you know, orders of magnitude louder than they were 50 years ago. But when we think about ocean noise, what we really need to think about is human expansion and how humans interact with the world at large. So we'll have concentrated pockets of noise where we have concentrated pockets of human activity. And then we have these thin lines of sound that wrap the world sort of like a ball of string, which represent all the different paths that things like shipping, um, oil and gas exploration, travel as we connect port to port to port. Mm. So I would say if you were going to look at a picture of the earth lit up with sound in the 1970s, it might look like you're just starting to wrap the earth in a ball of string. 
But if you were going to look at the earth in 2020, at least in, let's say, let's say 2019, <laughs> let's say you're going to look at a picture of, of how sound interacts with the ocean in 2019, it would look like you had splatter painted, like you had wrapped the earth round and round and round and round with this ball of string and that you were starting to get all this overlap around these major urban centers. Mm -hmm. And so the center of the Pacific would be drawn across with thick red lines and the center of the Atlantic would be drawn across with thick red lines. Mm -hmm. So saying exactly how much noisier the ocean is today than it was 50 years ago is something that, to be honest, we just don't know. And it changes day to day. It changes based on time of day. But what we do know is that on a whole, the ocean is experiencing anthropogenic noise, so man-made noise, at an absolutely unprecedented rate. Human activity has changed the way the ocean sounds. And there is almost no area in the world that you can go and drop a hydrophone that you wouldn't hear sounds of humanity if you listened for, you know, a day or two. And a hydrophone is just a microphone that you can put into the water. Yes, exactly. So a hydrophone is an underwater listening device. We can drop them down to the bottom of the ocean and we can leave them there for long periods of time, which is part of what my work entails is deploying hydrophones around the world and leaving them to listen when otherwise humans you know, wouldn't know what was going on. You did a great job of making something audio uh, visual there with your, your ball of string analogy. And what are what are some of the most tangled spots? Where where are the loudest spots and the quietest spots? And do we even know that much yet? Yeah, that we have a better understanding of. Um, generally, the loudest spots in the ocean are going to be near major ports of call and along shipping lanes. So the eastern seaboard is really noisy. Um, major ports in Asia are really noisy. Um, near the ports of San Francisco and Los Angeles are really noisy. Rio de Janeiro is really noisy. Mm. Um, any place where you have a major port, you're going to have noise, but shipping is not the only substantial contributor to ocean noise. We also get these major noise hotspots in areas where they're doing any kind of oil and gas exploration. And in fact, for many marine organisms, things like air guns can be dangerously loud. Um, that sound can have so much energy that it can damage the physical structure of things like fish and invertebrates and plankton. Um, it, it is noisy enough where if you were directly in the path of that, it would, it would deafen a, a whale or a seal or, or a human, certainly, if you happen to be scuba diving under the water near any of those blasts. Those are tools that are used to find where oil and gas are under, under the on the ocean floor? Exactly. Yes. So areas where we have high concentrations of oil and gas exploration, certainly that increases ocean noise. And then marine construction is another major contributor to ocean noise. So things like oil rigs, when we put in ports, um, when we build bridges, that all will permeate throughout the ocean. And then one that um, we have a tendency to sometimes think a little less of is, is tourism. Um, people enjoying themselves makes a lot of noise. So the sounds of cruise ships, the sounds of whale watching boats, the sounds of jet skis, the sounds of pleasure crafts, um, people heading out to go fishing on the weekend um, with their small little skiffs with their, you know, maybe a single outboard engine. That also makes a lot of noise. That noise really adds up. And so in, in general, you can link almost any human activity back at, to, if you follow the train far enough. To, to its contribution to ocean noise, whether that's shipping goods worldwide or whether or not that's getting on an airplane which flies over the ocean, which then 
permeates down through the air surface water boundary. Mm-hmm. Um, anytime we, we go near the ocean ourselves or anytime we purchase something that has had to travel across the ocean, that's going to have some sort of acoustic fingerprint or acoustic footprint um, um, in, in that particular marine ecosystem. Even planes. I didn't realize plane noise could actually make its way down into the ocean. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, it, depending on how low flying the plane is, um, it, it will definitely bounce right through the ocean and you can hear it. Small planes in particular that are flying closer to the water, um, you can hear. So, you know, when we interact with the ocean, we, we, we change the way that it sounds. And that's true of almost everything we do on land. But because of the way that sound travels underwater, um, noise underwater or sound underwater has a much further reaching, it, it, it goes further. Mm-hmm. Um, light underwater attenuates very quickly. So if you were to dive 30 or 40 feet underneath the, the surface of the ocean, say you're scuba diving, it gets dark pretty quick. Um, whereas on land, light attenuates pretty far. Mm-hmm. The op- opposite is true when you get underwater. Sound will travel very efficiently with very little loss of energy, which means that a sound that's made underwater um, can travel far and can be heard far and will be loud even at far distances. Hmm. And so because of that, most marine organisms um, have evolved strategies to rely on sound as their principal way of interpreting the world. So for humans, we interpret the world predominantly through sight. Um, we look around us to get information, and then we use sound also as a cue, um, but sight is our primary principle sensory modality. For marine organisms, we flip this. They use sound to forage, they use sound to breathe, they use sound to communicate. Um, and so when we make noise underwater, um, they interact with it. Mm-hmm. They will alter their behavior or they will hear it. And that's partially what makes anthropogenic noise potentially so dangerous. What it means is that with our human activities, we may be inadvertently acoustically blinding a lot of creatures that are that are underwater. Hmm. Acoustic blinding. I haven't heard that term before. It's evocative. And what, when did scientists start tracking noise in the ocean and its effect on animals? How, how old is this whole discipline? You know, it's not a very long, it's not an old discipline. Bioacoustics in the marine environment is really only a handful of decades old. We started listening to animals underwater with the Navy. You know, the Navy's really pioneered um, this concept that sound underwater was a powerful tool for understanding things. And um, I mean, I think some of the earliest listening devices started were in like the 1910s and 20s, but the field as a science really didn't take off until the 60s. Well, I'm excited to get into some of the details of, of your work, but maybe just give us a little introduction to these animals, their lifespan, their, their geographical range, their size, some things about their behavior, just kind of like a humpback 101. So humpback whales are perhaps the most well-watched and among the most beloved whales on the planet. And partially that's because they're a gregarious whale. So humpback whales are a coastal species and they're found worldwide. And they migrate from these high latitude foraging grounds, places like Iceland, um, places like um, Canada, places like Southeast Alaska or Antarctica. And at these high latitudes where the water is cold, they'll spend um, late spring, summer, and fall foraging. And that's what they do. They are there to eat. 
Um, they will gain thousands of pounds over the course of a single summer season. And they do this because at the end of the season, in the case of Northern Hemisphere whales, they'll migrate southbound into the tropics. In the case of Southern Hemisphere whales from Antarctica, they'll migrate northbound also into the tropics. And once they get to these tropical regions, those are their breeding and calving grounds where they will meet and then they will also give birth. But throughout migration and on these tropical breeding and calving grounds, humpback whales will fast. So they'll lose up to a third of their body weight Whoa. over the course of the winter season. Huh. Um, female whales, when they give birth, calves are 15 feet long and weigh several thousand pounds. Hmm. And um, mother whales will nurse these calves um, for hours and hours and hours every day. Um, humpback whale milk is extremely rich. It's very high in, 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 in fat, much more so than terrestrial mammals are. Um, these calves are nursing constantly and they're gaining lots and lots of weight. Mm. And these mother whales are getting skinnier and skinnier and skinnier. And then on the flip side of that, we have male whales on breeding grounds who are actively engaged in, in these very elaborate breeding and courtship behaviors, which involve, among other things, singing. On breeding grounds, and throughout the migratory corridor, but predominantly on breeding grounds, male whales produce these long, extremely complex, repetitive and structured acoustic signals that we call songs. These songs are culturally transmitted, which means that um, males will learn them from each other and then they shift and change over time. And so every year we get a new breeding song and over the course of the summer season, it starts to change ever so slightly. And it's interesting because there's not a lot of animals that exhibit social learning um, in the same way that humpback whales do. So these songs are very, very complex. How long are they? Oh, um, humpback whale songs can be up to 20 or 25 minutes long. Whoa. If you were to drop a hydrophone in Hawaii during the breeding season, 24 hours a day you'll hear somebody singing. And so when you say they're they're culturally transmitted, just to make sure I understand that, so you're saying that like these these male whales within a certain cluster, they all are singing the same song or just sort of similarly related song? No, they're all singing the same song. All male humpback whales within a breeding population at a given time will sing the same song, but the song will evolve. So it will slowly change um, over the course of a breeding season. So there's a really interesting example of this that probably um, can sort of demonstrate the cultural transmission best. In Australia, they have humpback whales on the eastern side and they have humpback whales on the western side. And they're discrete populations. They don't interact on their breeding grounds. And they sing two separate songs. An errant humpback whale from one region infiltrated the song of the 
of, of the other whales. And so one singer came in with a new, with a novel song type that hadn't been heard there before. And what happened was all of the male whales changed. Huh. They all adopted the new song. So that's been dubbed a, a cultural revolution. There was the introduction of this novel song type. All of the other male whales were like, hey, I want to sing what he's singing. Over the course of the breeding season, they adopted this new song type. <laughs> it's like a British, the British invasion and suddenly everybody's imitating the Beatles or something. Exactly, exactly, exactly. It's like East meets West and we all switch over. <laughs> why would they, well, I guess I want to ask why would they switch, but I guess to first understand why do all the males in a certain cultural group sing the same song? Doesn't that, I would just sort of assume that they're competing for female attention and so it would behoove them to, to sing an especially cool song that's different from their buddies as opposed to them all singing the same song. But what, what's going on there? All right, so that is also a complicated answer. <laughs> okay. Um, why do all whales sing the same song? The answer is we don't know. Um, in the animal kingdom, it is very common that males of the species will sing the same song. Um, birds, for example, generally will sing the same songs, mm -hmm. even if those songs are, are culturally transmitted, even if they're learned. Um, and the male that sings it best likely will, will get the girl. But for humpback whale song, there's evidence that song may serve several social functions, that it's not just to woo a female, but it also um, serves as a male-male interaction. You know, I, I, I hate to be the biologist that says we don't know why whales sing. Um, <laughs> we certainly know that they sing in a breeding context. There's lots of evidence that it, it is for mate attraction and that it's for competition. But the truth of the matter is, even though we're talking about an animal that might be 40 feet long and weigh 80,000 pounds and it jumps out of the water and it lives right off of our coastline, there is a great deal we don't know. Mm -hmm. And trying to understand the function of a sound is very difficult. I might flip that question on its head and ask, um, like, why do people sing? Yeah. And that's a complicated question. And if we can't even figure it out in our own species <laughs> in this nice, concise way, when we can analyze it and research it and talk to each other, it is that much more difficult to try and understand why a humpback whale sings when we can't just ask it and we don't understand. And we can't yet put our own human perspective into the mindset of a whale so much of how we interpret their actions is, is placed through the lens of human behavior. Yeah. And so it's really important that we try and frame their behavior in the context of their perception. So why do whales sing? Well, how do whales hear? Well, all right, once we figure out how whales hear, what are whales hearing? Once we know what whales are hearing, we can know how they might be filtering the song. And then we might know something about what exactly that song is for. Mm-hmm. I love this answer, actually, because it just it opens up mystery upon mystery in it. And I also love it because it leads me to, my, to the next question I was going to ask you, which was how do whales actually produce and receive sound? Like we have two ears and vocal cords and a mouth, but what do humpback whales have for both the receiving and the production of sound? So whales also have two ears, although that isn't necessarily, I mean, certainly they hear through their ears, but not in the way that we might think. Um, mysticetes, so mysticetes are the, um, our baleen whales, um, our, our sort of large planktonic filter feeding whales, those are mysticete whales. Um, 
up until very recently, we, we didn't have any, any concept at all as to how Mr. Seeds here. There have been a, a handful of publications that have come out on the anatomy of, of large whales that indicate that in the same way that we um, collect sound through our pinning, through our ears, and that gets filtered through into our ear canal, there is evidence that for, for baleen whales that they're actually receiving those vibrations partially through their bones through the actual bones in their skull mm. um, and that that is vibrating up and, and transmitting that sound close to the inner ear so that they can have that push pull pressure, which is necessary for, for hearing. Um, but we don't know the exact mechanism or the sensitivity for how that works. Wow. That's yes. awesome. Like thinking of your whole body being an ear <laughs> or your head anyway. <laughs> yeah. And alternatively sound production, we know a little more about um, baleen whales have something called vocal folds, which are analogous to vocal cords in humans. And unlike humans, whales do not need to open their mouths in order to produce sound. They can produce sound with their mouths closed. And so they will actually move air back and forth through different sinus cavities going back and forth over those vocal folds. How they manipulate those vocal folds to produce the range of sounds that they produce, we don't know. Um, mm. humpback whales produce an incredibly diverse repertoire of sounds, um, an almost unclassifiable number of sounds that they are capable of producing. We are still teasing out which sounds are produced as a byproduct of other activities. Um, the way that, you know, you might sneeze, um, that makes a sound, but we wouldn't call it a vocalization. Humpback whales also make several sounds that were like, is that a, a vocalization or does it have allergies? It can be <laughs> difficult to tell. <laughs> the nuances of this are still, again, um, we're still working a lot of, of, of these particular things out. And part of that is because these are animals that cannot be kept in captivity. You can't put a humpback whale in an aquarium. It's not, it's not possible. They're too large. They require too much space. They, would, they wouldn't survive. So, so much, the bulk of what we do is about being on the water, getting in the ocean, being near the ocean and coming up with the best possible ways we can to take advantage of, um, of naturally occurring situations and to observe um, how these creatures are interacting with each other, how they're functioning, um, and even just really simple things like how big are they? What do they eat? What do they say? simple questions that are very hard to answer. Yeah. And just to connect back up with what you were saying in, in response to my question about, you know, why they all would sing the same thing, as I understand it, what, part of what you're saying is in order to answer that, we have to first step back and realize that like what we're hearing when we're able to capture whale sound, that might not actually be the experience of what that sound even sounds like to them because we don't fully understand how they're hearing. Is that... Was that part of what you said? That is exactly right. And that's fascinating to me that we're like, oh, here's a whale sound and we think it's super interesting and it might sound completely different inside their own heads. And it does, it just sort of feels like how, I, I don't know, it feels almost kind of magical, I guess. It, it's, it's, it's a great treat as a biologist when, when there are unknowns. Mm -hmm. The things that we don't know allow us to ask creative questions based on the laws of nature. Um, if you think about, there's a structure to this world. 
There is a structure to how evolution functions. There is a structure to how chemistry functions. But nature is filled with unknowns. So part of my job as a scientist is to take the skeleton of nature and use my imagination to fill in what the flesh might be. Mm. And then to go out into the world and test those hypotheses to see, do I see the fingernails and hair and skin of nature the way that I imagined it? Or, or is, the, is it something else? But before we could ask, why do all male whales sing the same song? We had to learn that all male whales sing the same song. <laughs> yeah. And that was quite a feat. That was an enormous discovery because before we could do that, we had to figure out that it was in fact male whales that were singing. And then before that, we had to figure out it was whales that were singing. And those discoveries, learning, gaining that information took decades. So it is a slow and steady process of um, imagining, cultivating questions, testing those questions, and then sharing the answers. More whales and more of my conversation with Dr. Michelle Fournay, right after this short break. Welcome back to Threshold Conversations. I'm Amy Martin, and I'm speaking with Dr. Michelle Fournay, a fellow at the Center for Conservation Bioacoustics at Cornell University. One of her areas of expertise is the acoustic ecology of humpback whales. What, what are the different kinds of sounds that whales make? Or, or maybe I should say, how, how do you or other um, experts categorize the different kinds of sounds they make as we hear them? So um, for humpback whales, we basically put their sounds into three very broad categories. There's song, which we've talked quite a bit about, which is produced only by males. Male whales are the only ones who sing. And then there's also percussive sounds. That's the sound of a whale's body hitting the water. So when it slaps its flippers or its pectoral fins, or when it slaps its tail flukes down on the water, when it breaches, all of those things make these loud percussive sounds. And then there is what I think are perhaps the most interesting of all the sounds that humpback whales make, which are the calls or non-song calls. They're also called social sounds or social vocalizations. humpback whale calls are produced by male whales, female whales, old whales, baby whales. All of the humpback whales in the world will produce a suite of calls. And these calls are all of the sounds that whales make outside of the context of song. In, in the field of study for studying these, these social sounds, these non-song vocalizations is very new, very new. Up until um, the mid to late 2000s, there were only a handful of people who had described the fact that humpback whales produced sounds outside of song. That is very, very new indeed. That's like 10 years ago. Oh, yes, yes. The male whales, when they sing, are really loud and really gregarious. And the song is so complex and interesting and beautiful. But from a science perspective, it's this great scientific mystery. And 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 it's loud and it's long and it's present and it's gregarious and it's showy. And that is often the case with male breeding behavior. And it wasn't until 2007 that anybody sat down and said, hey, you know, we should probably catalog what 
the rest of the whales are saying, what they're saying the rest of the time. (laughs) (laughs) Is there a gender bias here, I have to ask? Because it's like, it's just striking that we were so fascinated by what the dudes were doing. We weren't paying attention to the women and children. (laughs) You know, I think about this a lot. Is there a sex bias in in how we've studied whales? Um, It certainly came out that way. I don't know that there was an intention to study just what the male whales are saying. I, I, I think that song was an obvious choice to study. To study what female whales say was a much less obvious choice. And it took some intention to go out and try and collect these much more subtle sounds and this much more subtle calling behavior. You know, when I first started my work with humpback whale social sounds, there were maybe 10 researchers worldwide that were interested in studying calls. Like we could all sit down for coffee and comfortably talk. Wow. And every year we get new recruits. We get people that are, are interested in sort of the other side of humpback whale communication. Mm-hmm. And so as a result, what we have now is a new generation of scientists who are addressing a new question. You know, the the previous generation of scientists were predominantly male and predominantly white. And we are just now starting to intentionally make that shift to include a broader representation of voices in the marine mammal science community, Um, representation of the voice of, of women in science, people of color in science, And I don't know if there's any relationship whatsoever between these two things, but I do think that it's an interesting moment that when we are really trying to give voice to human representation in the field of marine mammal science, that that is also coinciding with an intention to give voice to underrepresented demographics of marine mammals themselves. Hmm. This new generation of of more diverse marine mammal scientists is listening to these subtle sounds, listening to the voice of female whales, listening to the voice of, of quiet whales. We're making an effort to paint a more complete picture to the best of our ability. I mean, we are succeeding in some areas and making very little progress in others, but um, in the same way that we are expanding the culture of science, we are also simultaneously expanding our, our knowledge of the culture of these animals and, and their social structure, just as we work to, you know, expand the completeness of our own. That is fascinating to me. And it makes sense to me because I think anybody knows who's, who's paid attention to it, that how well our voices are listened to um, by other humans has a lot to do with with who we are, how we're perceived, and some of those those different categories of 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 power and privilege. And so it just makes sense to me that that would also affect who we are as listeners um, in terms of what we what we are prone to notice, what we pay attention to, what we're motivated to, um, you know, commit decades of work to studying, you know, that's all that's all influenced by who we are as people. So it's a great it's a great argument for why we need more diversity in science just to make us uh, make us smarter as a species. Yes, I absolutely agree. So, like the little 
That's a call? All of these are calls. So calls are incredibly diverse um, and they can be really varied. This is a series of, of sounds that were um, recorded in Southeast Alaska in 2016, and all of these are calls. So none of this is song. What you hear in this recording is um, a very long feeding call that is produced by a single animal. So that animal is foraging at the moment. And then behind that sound, what you're hearing is anywhere from 10 to 15 different animals that are, are vocalizing either to each other um, in small groups um, or, or producing sounds perhaps to, to slurry up fish. But this particular clip includes well over a dozen animals. there was, I think, upwards of 30 whales that were in the area. And, and let me say that that's unusual. That is, that's not a common behavior for humpback whales. Um, humpback whales in Southeast Alaska are often traveling in small groups. They're often traveling alone. Um, but this day we had this particularly large aggregation. And as a result, we got this really quite extraordinary cacophony of sounds that we don't often get. Huh. How deep were the whales, do you think, uh, roughly? Well, I think it was changing. Um, the water in that area is about 250 feet deep. And I'd say that the whales were going up and down the water column as they forage. But plenty of them were right, were right by the surface. Um, um, when we recorded that, it was, it, I was on a very small boat and um, we were dead in the water. We always record dead in the water and we always position the vessel far away from the whales so as not to disturb them. Um, but the nature of this particular aggregation of whales is that they were moving around. And so they ended up sort of milling about a hundred yards off of the boat. And I was listening to the hydrophone. And so I could simultaneously hear the sounds of those animals underwater, but I could also hear the sounds of their breath as, as various members of this, of this group of whales were surfacing. Wow. Oh, it was extraordinary. So you could <laughs> hear the whales as they were, um, that, <sighs> Of, uh, of the whale as it would exhale, um, along with the, the, the sort of squeaks and whistles and whatnot of the whales as they were for, as you know, as they were calling underneath the water. So that sound is called an auga. <laughs> and then that long operatic sound that you're hearing? Yeah. That's the feeding call. So that call is only heard in Southeast Alaska, and more recently, it's expanded southward into parts of British Columbia. Um, and that sort of long operatic call is produced, it's in the peak hearing range of Pacific herring. And as a result, when herring hear that call, they flee, they, they swim away from it. And humpback whales use that as a form of manipulation to force the fish towards the surface of the water so they can be more easily eaten. Wow, 
so they're calling intentionally for them to hear like you'd think they'd want to sneak up on them but instead they're like here we come and that drives them into the place where they're going to be more easily snatched up exactly so they produce that particular feeding call in congress with blowing bubbles so they blow bubbles in this ring around the school of fish which also elicits an anti-predator response and so those herring will actually clump up in response to the bubbles and then move away from the sound What's the harm, harm sound? So that sound is a sound that falls into what we call the pulsed call class. To be honest, that particular sound doesn't have a name because we haven't, because it, it's really hard to classify. That sound is produced from time to time, but it's not highly stereotyped. So we haven't been able to nail down exactly what it is, but it is some sort of pulsed sound. And we think that these pulsed sounds help to facilitate closer range social interactions. But to be perfectly honest, we don't know why they produce them. We have not gotten that far yet. Okay, so those are calls. Let's hear some song again, just so we can compare the two. I think the, the, the lay listener will probably be able to make some differentiations uh, herself or himself. But, but as an expert here, what do you notice right away that's different between a song and, and the different calls? So the biggest difference between song and calls is structure. When you hear the song, you can hear that they produce the same sound over and over and over again. And then they switch and they produce another sequence of sounds over and over and over again. So they get this sort of A, 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 B, A, B, A, B, A, 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 B, C, B, C, B, C. There's this structure. And so what you get is you get song units that are produced in these sort of phrases, and then those phrases are repeated, and then all of that in this sort of hierarchical structured situation um, is put together to create song. Whereas calls occur kind of haphazardly. Um, you, you get a sort of random smattering of calls here, random smattering of calls there. They're produced um, without a lot of structure and often they're produced in isolation. So even though the clip that we listen to has a lot of sounds in it, most of the time when you drop a hydrophone on a foraging ground, you hear very little and and then when they do start to call you hear one or two sounds that are repeated and you'll get most commonly you get a, a call called a whoop call which it goes and here's a recording of a whoop <laughs> um, whoop calls are amazing they're really amazing sounds and they're easily the most commonly produced sound type that you'll hear um, in Southeast Alaska, but not just in Southeast Alaska. This is one of the most commonly produced call types heard anywhere in the world. And this, I think, is really interesting. This is, is one of the things that really keeps me up at night. Song changes 
and song changes based on which population is saying it and changes from year to year to year. But those whoop calls don't. They're produced by every population of whales. Humpback whales have been producing whoop calls for generations. So why? Why is it that that sound sticks? Um, that whales that have never met each other, that have been separated genetically by millions of years. Um, so genetically isolated population of, of animals that will never interact, that have never interacted, that haven't, that don't have a, a shared lineage in any kind of recent history. They're all producing the same sound. Mm -hmm. Something tells us that ecologically that sound persists because it's important that sound has stayed in this acoustic repertoire for each of these populations of animals. And it persists generation after generation because it's meaningful to that, to that animal's life history. And as a result, a lot of what I have done and what I'm focusing my efforts on is really trying to understand these calls, not the calls that are changing over and over and over, not the calls that are culturally transmitted, but my interest is in documenting which of these calls are likely to be innate and what the function and role of these innate calls is. Well, that um, leads me to this this 2018 study you were the lead author on, which um, I think one of the main quotes from the conclusion was, humpback whale call types persist across multiple generations. And I was wondering if you could explain in, in layman's terms what that actually means. Um, maybe you just did, but can you say more about persisting not only across in, in different populations, but across multiple generations? Yes, absolutely. So in the 1970s, humpback whales were critically endangered. Their populations were, were, were critically, critically low. They were on the brink of extinction. And in the 1970s, Roger Payne went to Southeast Alaska and he sat in a small boat and he dropped a hydrophone. And this is what he heard. He heard humpback whales producing whoop calls and humpback whales producing growls and humpback whales producing swaps and droplets, these really lovely little disorganized clusters of calls. And luckily, since the 1970s, those populations have rebounded. Those whales gave birth and their offspring produced whoop calls and produced growls and produced swaps and droplets. And then those animals gave birth. And those populations, those new animals, the next generation produced growls and whoop calls and swaps and droplets. And what we found is that over time, as the population grew, that these call types persisted. And that when we dropped a hydrophone every decade um, from 1976 until 2000, and I think 2012 was the last year of the study, um, that whereas they could have fallen out of the, of the acoustic repertoire, they could have stopped being part of the conversation the way that slang might have, or, or the way that song from 1976 sounds very different than song in 2012. But instead, as the population grew, these call types stuck around. Mm -hmm. What's more is that they didn't just stick around in Southeast Alaska. When we listened to these sounds, you know, generation after generation of generation of whales producing these sounds, and then we realized it's not just Pacific whales that produce them. It's Atlantic whales. It's not just Atlantic whales, it's Southern hemisphere whales. And, and so again, this suite of calls um, are, are hanging on in a way that in the rest of the humpback whale acoustic repertoire, 
um, sounds often turn over or disappear. Mm -hmm. But these call types did not. These five call types, you know, stuck it out generation after generation. Do we have any idea of why or what they're saying? Are they... I mean, it's just so tempting to to imagine they're telling stories or they're passing on knowledge or um, do you have any kind of guesses or, or hypotheses in, in terms of decoding it? You know, I do. <laughs> um, <laughs> and partially this is what we're working on now. And I'm really, really excited about it. Um, there's a lovely study, I, can't, I think I want to say it's a 2011 study that um, Lauren Wilde and Chris Gabriel published called um, Putative Contact Call Produced by Humpback Whales. And they proposed that humpback whale whoop calls, that that is so, so ubiquitous amongst humpback whales worldwide, they proposed that that call might be a contact call. And that humpback whales would produce that call when they were interacting with other humpbacks, sort of as a way of alerting one another to their presence. Like, I am here. I am also here. Mm. Um, and so in 2019, we, just this past summer, we went to Southeast Alaska with a speaker and a hydrophone array. And I took recordings that I had been making in Southeast Alaska over the past 10 years of this humpback whale whoop call. Um, and we played it to the whales <laughs> to see if they would call back and to see whether or not this call was in fact a contact call. And the data is still coming in. We know we're still doing the analysis, but, um, but there's, there's some really strong evidence to support the fact that this call might be a way of, of maintaining social interactions, of facilitating social interactions, that it might in fact be a counter call, that if you whoop to them, if all goes well, maybe they will whoop back. <laughs> that is so cool. It's like you're, I mean, when you played it and they, I'm assuming they must have responded. Did you feel like you had just like kind of I don't know, gotten the first letter on the Rosetta Stone or something like, hello, hello from the surface, hello from this other part of the planet. I mean, how did it feel? Uh, it felt amazing. It felt absolutely amazing. It felt serendipitous. Um, and then I had to sort of take a deep breath and, and, and remind myself that they produce this call all the time and that possibly they were talking to me and possibly they were just doing what they do anyway. And, <laughs> and so I'm in the process of teasing that out, but, but it, but it, I guess without giving too much away because the study's not done, there's, there's just a, a lot of evidence that these animals are interacting with each other in a really nuanced way and that we are getting closer to figuring out what those nuances are. Because the other really interesting thing about that particular call is there's a good chance that it contains identifying information, that it contains this concept of, of voice. Not that it's a, a, a name per se. You know, dolphins have Dolphins have signature whistles, so they, um, you know, they produce sounds that are individual, they're learned, but you and I can identify people by the sound of their voices. Mm -hmm. There is some evidence, and again, we're still working on this. These results are very, very preliminary, but there is evidence that that same concept of quality of voice mm -hmm. that is recognizable 
could be contained in in these little contact calls. Oh my gosh, that just absolutely gives me chills. And as soon as we can travel, I have to come hang out with you when you're when you're listening to this. This is so cool um, because it makes sense. I mean, we we can. I mean, people who haven't heard the voice of of someone that they knew when they were when they were teenagers, you know, at least after the voices have like changed into their semi-adult form you can hear that voice 40 years later and immediately have a connection of like knowing who that person is and um it just makes sense to me that such an intelligent animal would would be learning something about the other individual through the quality of the voice um I don't know. I'm no scientist, but that makes sense to me. <laughs> it, it, it does make sense. And it makes sense also because humpback whales will maintain relationships for years and they'll maintain relationships over very, very long temporal and also geographic scales. So it's not like, um, like, like killer whales, killer whales stay with their mothers for life. They stay in these really tight knit family groups. Humpbacks don't do that, but humpback whales do maintain these social affiliations that will last for, for potentially for decades. And we've observed this in Glacier Bay, and we've seen this in the North Atlantic, that, um, that whales will repeatedly affiliate with the same animals. And the question is, how do you know who to affiliate with? How do you know that, who they are? How do you find each other? And the answer that makes the most sense intuitively when you think about how sound travels underwater is to think that they're finding each other by sound. So yeah, listen for the sound of the voice of your, of your comrade and, um, and, and the, the relationship could potentially be maintained. And when you say they affiliate, does that mean, are you saying like they choose to migrate with each other? They choose to forage with each other? They choose to forage with each other. So we have groups of animals that will repeatedly aggregate to, to forage together. Um, sometimes in large groups where we get that bubble netting behavior, where they produce feeding calls and blow bubbles and we get animals that will repeatedly get together to do this coordinated foraging. But then sometimes their relationships are more subtle. Sometimes it's two individuals that will affiliate for a few days. So they'll travel together, they'll eat together, they'll socialize together, and then they'll break up. But then a week or so after that, they'll reconvene. They'll come back together, they'll travel together, they'll forage together, they'll socialize together. And, um, and we've seen this in a couple different populations where these animals exhibit these sort of short-term relationships that sort of ebb and flow in and out and in and out, but that they, they associate with each other more so than with other animals and that they'll do this repeatedly over years. Hmm. And, and how long, what is the lifespan, the average lifespan for a humpback? Oh, humpbacks can live a long time. Um, we think that humpback whales can probably live upwards of about a hundred years. Hmm. Um, it's a little hard to say, right? Because for so long we were hunting these animals and what that means was, you know, I mentioned that in the 1970s, our population was severely, severely depleted. And we're, we're only just now starting to get into whales that are able to grow old. Yeah. So we know that humpback whales can live to be into their 70s and 80s. There's evidence that they can live to be into their 90s. A good guess is to think that humpback whales could live to be upwards of 100 or so years old. Other types of baleen whales can live to be even older than that. Um, bowhead whales can live to be over 200 years old, hmm. really, really long lived creatures. So when we think about whales, when we think about humpbacks, you really have to adjust your sense of scale. We have to think about them from the perspective of an ocean basin, relationships that span miles, relationships that span years, relation, you know, voices that span generations. Um, 
we have to think bigger in every sense of the word when we try and understand how these animals interact with the world and how they interact with each other. We'll have more after this. Welcome back to Threshold Conversations. I'm Amy Martin, and I'm talking with acoustic ecologist Michelle Fournay. Today, we're focused on her research on humpback whales in southeast Alaska. But Dr. Fournay also studies fish in Florida's Everglades National Park, and she founded and directs the Sound Science Research Collective, a nonprofit organization dedicated to excellence and equity in science. We have links to Michelle's various projects on our website, including photos and audio from her fieldwork with the humpback whales we're talking about here. In this last segment of our conversation, we focus on how our human activities could be impacting the whales. And to begin to understand that, I asked Michelle how far humpback voices carry underwater. It depends. It depends on how noisy the environment is. It depends on how loud the call is, and it depends on the environment. And that's actually one of the things that we do a lot of research on is how far away you can detect a humpback whale. Um, song can be detected for many, many miles because they're singing really loudly. So if you have a quiet day and you have a singing whale, you might be able to hear him for 10, 20 miles, potentially longer based on how the ocean's doing that day. If you have exactly the right ocean properties and your whale is at exactly the right depth, you could potentially hear that song for, for 40 or 50 miles away. Um, blue whales can be detected for much, much further. Some animals can be detected for hundreds of miles. <laughs> um, but the kind of neat thing about humpbacks is when humpback whales call, they're actually calling quietly. So that tells us something. Like why would an animal that can be heard for 10, 20, 30 miles away choose to whisper? And we, we did this research in Southeast Alaska where we measured how loud a humpback call was because we wanted to say how far away we could hear it. And, and the answer was that these animals weren't calling loudly at all, which is an indication that when they make those sounds, they're not advertising something, but they are communicating. So they're limiting their range of communication. So we can pretty safely say that you can hear humpback calls from at least five miles away um, and, and likely um, up to 10 or 15 miles away, but it really depends on how the whale is behaving. And then of course that, that brings us back to noise because if, if a boat is passing by, that communication range just diminishes. It can go from 15 miles to 15 meters in a matter of moments. Wow. Um, the louder the background noise is, the less you hear the sound that you're interested in which means that when boats pass by, the whales can't hear each other and we can't hear them either. There are so many different ways that human activity is impacting the ocean. Um, you know, ocean acidification and plastic pollution. Um, among all the different impacts, how would you rank the noise problem in, in terms from a whale perspective? Like, is it the most harmful thing we're doing to them? How much of an impact are we having through, our, through the noise we're adding? Is it the most harmful thing we're doing? I think that there is a real danger in ranking threats. Mm -hmm. Sure, I could say I think noise is the biggest problem, and then we would stop caring about ocean acidification. Or I could say entanglement is a bigger problem, and then we focus all of our efforts there. The truth of the matter is all of these are cumulative threats. Noise creates behavioral shifts. It prevents normal life function from happening. 
It likely creates stress. But all of those things are exacerbated by shortages in food that are associated with climate change. Hmm. All of those things are exacerbated by the likelihood of ship strikes. If an animal is disoriented because it can't hear, it's likely to get hit by a boat. That's a cumulative problem. If an animal changes its normal distribution patterns because the distribution of its prey have changed and it's having a hard time finding food and its new area that it has to move into in order to find those forage fish is a shipping lane. Now, not only is it food stressed, but it's stressed by noise. It's reduced ability to communicate and, and now it's likely to get hit by a boat. Mm, yeah, I hear you. That's a great, that's a great um, framing of it that really to try to just hone in on one problem um, and ignore others is it's not going to give us the true nature of the problem. Yeah, it's really important that we think about ocean conservation holistically and that we that we think about it from an integrated perspective, that our goal can't be to sort of say, we're going to solve this one problem, that what we have to do is protect an ecosystem. And even though I have a deep love for humpback whales, they're not the only species that's at risk because of ocean noise or because of ocean acidification. And the loss of whales would throw our ecosystem out of balance. And similarly, a loss of prey species will throw our ecosystem out of balance. Um, no one single species encompasses the health of the ocean. They interact with each other. Similarly, we think that what happens in the ocean is isolated, but what happens in the ocean changes what happens to us on land. This is a little morbid, but there's a lot of really interesting research done on carbon sequestration inside the body of whales. Whales are an enormous animal and worldwide, they encompass a lot of, of physical mass. Yeah. Before industrial whaling, when whales would die, they would sink to the bottom of the ocean and that carbon would be sequestered huh. and it would stay out of the atmosphere. It would sink to the bottom of the ocean and it would stay there for a long time until the carbon cycle resurfaced it. During the industrial revolution, when we were really heavily hunting whales worldwide, we took massive amounts of carbon that naturally should have sunk to the bottom of the ocean and stayed there. And we extracted oil from it mm. and then we burned it. Hmm. The first, the start of the tipping of what we now know as the Anthropocene, where the human footprint on ecology became noticeable in the geologic record. So much of that started with the body of whales. It was the first widespread oil that we used for light or lubrication or fuel on this planet. All of that started with the burning of the body of whales. And so in a lot of ways, what has become our current climate crisis began when, when we began extracting this massive living carbon source that should have sunk. And so should we save whales for their own right? Oh, absolutely. We should. We should, we should protect whales for their intrinsic value. We should have a quiet ocean because a quiet ocean is something of value, whether we experience it or not. But if you need more of a motivation for why it is we should protect the ocean, we should protect the ocean because the ocean is, is how the world naturally moderates its climate. None of 
none of these ecological processes occur in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. The conservation of a species is the conservation of a planet and the conservation of a planet saves us all. Um, you know, so save the whales and save yourself. And, and when one fails, swoop. That's fascinating. I had not thought about the, the whales as a, and the carbon connection. Um, just to bring us back to sound, what effects do the noises that we're making have on whales specifically that do we know um, what, what effects we're, we're having? Yes. Yeah. We, we know a lot about how noise impacts whales. So there are three primary shifts that we see that whales will exhibit in, in the presence of anthropogenic noise, of man-made noise. When boats approach whales, whales dive longer and they move away. And that might seem obvious and that might seem small, but it, it means that we have the potential to displace these animals. And when we follow that up, what we see is that in addition to moving away and diving longer, that when there are a lot of vessels in the area, there's evidence that humpback whales in particular will reduce their foraging effort. And that, of course, could have massive fitness implications. And then the work that I've done in Southeast Alaska and, and, else, you know, and other folks have done around the world also shows us that when the ocean gets noisy, humpback whales are doing their best to adapt, that they are, are trying to continue to be heard above the noise. And what that means is that when the ocean gets noisy with vessel noise, humpback whales will call louder, that they will increase the loudness of their calls so that they can be detected. But on the flip side of that, as the ocean gets filled with, with man-made noise, humpback whales will also start to call less, hmm. that they actually at some point will wait until the noise has passed or, or it's not worth it to make those sounds and so what we found is that there's about a 30% reduction in the probability of a humpback whale producing a sound if the noise in the environment is associated with a man-made source. If it was just rainy, rain makes a lot of noise, rain and wind are noisy, but a humpback whale is much more likely to continue calling if the noise source is a storm or if the noise source is a harbor seal than it is if the source is, is from a boat. So they'll call louder but they call less, they'll move away and they reduce their foraging effort. Mm. That's what humpback whales do when it gets noisy. But there are plenty of examples in other whales that we haven't been able to test yet in humpbacks that demonstrate that there's also a loss of social interaction associated with noise and that there's a potential increase in stress associated with noise. There's a really extraordinary study that is very timely to reference right now, where after 9-11, we closed down the Eastern seaboard for three days. And there was a group of researchers who had hydrophones in the water there and they were listening. And then they were also going out and they were studying North Atlantic right whales. And they were looking at stress in North Atlantic right whales. And so for several years, they had been out on the water collecting right whale feces and analyzing it for stress hormones. And then they were broadly associating this with noise in the region. There was a significant drop in ocean noise associated with 9-11. Huh. For three days, the Atlantic coast went quiet. There was also a significant drop 
in right whale stress during that time period. Fascinating. But yeah, and and there's and that's a lot of evidence that when you reduce ocean noise, when you take boats out of the water, that stress goes down. It's a correlation. You know, there there are other things, but there's that's some pretty strong evidence. And we're in another moment like that right now. Yeah, because of the coronavirus pandemic, things have gotten much, much quieter in the oceans. Um, do we know how much quieter and do we know how or if it's affecting the whales? We don't know how much quieter yet, but we will. We definitely know it's quieter. Shipping is down. Travel is down. What that means is that the port of Miami is quieter than it has likely been in years. That means in Southeast Alaska, those humpback whales that I talked about in 1972, they are experiencing the first cruise ship free summer in 50 years. And and do you have hydrophones in the in the water there? Yes, we do. Ah, <laughs> we do. Um, I have a colleague in Glacier Bay National Park. She has a hydrophone in the water, and um, that one is recording. And then in June of this year, we are putting another hydrophone out in Juneau, which is a, a tourism center in Southeast Alaska. It's the whale watching capital of Alaska, and um, we're going to put a hydrophone right in the center of those waters and go listen to the whales. And then we're going to put another hydrophone out in Glacier Bay right in the path of where the cruise ships would typically go. But in this year, because there are no cruise ships, we expect it to sound very, very different. What do you, what's your working hypothesis? What do you think you're going to hear? What I think we're going to hear is, um, I mean, for a start, I, I feel quite confident that the ocean is going to be significantly quieter in June of 2020 than it was in June of 2019. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I'm very certain of that as we, do, as we have fewer boats on the water. What I anticipate hearing from the humpbacks is actually um, a different sort of conversation. <laughs> because boats make a lot of noise, they limit the complexity of the conversation. I'll make an analogy here. If you are having a conversation at a rock concert, you're gonna talk loudly and use very simple language. Mm -hmm. in order to get your point across. But if you're sitting next to somebody on your couch, cuddled up under a blanket, you can have a long and elaborate conversation filled with nuance without interruption. Mm -hmm. So what I hypothesize is that what we're going to hear from the whales this summer are conversations that perhaps we've never heard before, that the level of complexity in the acoustic interactions that we hear is going to be higher than it has been in the past. What I think is going to happen is that the quality of the conversation is going to change as we open up the acoustic space. And I think that this can only happen because it is such a protracted period of silence. Yeah. It's not like someone just really quickly turned off the noise and then turned it back on again. It's that these animals will have the chance to adapt to this period of silence on an ecologically relevant scale. Remember, when we think about humpbacks, we have to change how we perceive scale. Three days in the life of a humpback whale is monumental, but two or three months of silence is enough to really start to see these animals shifting their behavior in a meaningful way. So as awful as this pandemic is and as much um, suffering as it's causing, um, from your perspective, in terms of what you're trying to study, 
this is kind of a once in a lifetime opportunity for you to learn something and to gather some data that you would probably never have gotten the chance to gather otherwise. Uh, absolutely. I mean, it, it is completely unethical to cultivate this situation. I could never ask Southeast Alaska to shut the cruise ships down for an entire summer. The economic ramifications of this pandemic are enormous and, and there are communities which are suffering and are gonna suffer for a long time. And my heart goes out to them and I want them to be able to get back on the water to interact with these animals. But if we can't find at least some gratitude for the fact that amidst all of our human suffering, that there is, you know, perhaps this moment of relief for our oceans. I mean, that, that it seems essential. Mm-hmm. There's not going to be another opportunity for this in, in, in my lifetime, in my career. I hope, I absolutely hope that we don't go through this again. But as a result, it is critical that during this time um, that we find a way to listen. And that's exactly what we're doing right now is all of us are hunkered down, sitting in our living rooms, waiting patiently so that when this whole thing blows over and we can get back out on the water to recover these instruments, that we can take the time to listen to what the ocean was doing when, when we were all at home. Mm. As somebody who also works in sound, I have to say, I just hope your mics are working. I hope you don't have any technological issues. I'm like nervous for them now. I want to go like, wait, testing, testing. Are you picking this up? Yep, we are, we are doing everything we can. We know for sure that one of our microphones is working and the other ones, I am going to trust the technology and, um, and also cross my fingers. <laughs> Well, my last question for you, um, it just has to do with the future. Um, do you think that this is a solvable problem? C- can we have a globally interconnected human society without polluting the acoustic environment so terribly for whales and all the other creatures that are, are depending on, on a quieter world? You know, I'm going to tell you about a sign I saw on a shop here in Ithaca. I thought this was really inspiring. The shop was closed and it said, look how quickly the world changed. You did that. We did that. We can do anything. Hmm. This was probably the most rapid shift in human behavior that we have seen in a millennia. If we can shut down all of society over a pandemic, I am very confident that there is nothing we can't do. We can make good decisions and we can make generous decisions and we can make kind decisions and we can make hard decisions. I have a lot of hope that having this opportunity to listen is going to enable us to give voice to the ocean again and give voice to the ocean in a way that we've never been able to do it before. So yes, I think that we can change our behavior I think that we can change how we interact with each other. And I think that we can change how we interact with this world. Well, Michelle Fernay, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for your work and for taking the time to talk with me about it. Um, I hope to meet you in real life and get to listen to some of your your new data as it comes in at some point. Absolutely. I would love that. And um, this has been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for reaching out.
All of the whale sounds you heard in this episode came to us from Michelle Fournay. Thanks to her for that gift. Thanks also to the Park Foundation, Montana Public Radio, the International Women's Media Foundation's Howard G. Buffett Fund for Women Journalists, and the many listeners who support our work at thresholdpodcast.org slash donate. The Threshold team includes Talia Farnsworth, Eva Kalea, Nick Mott, Casey Simpson, and Angela Swatek, with help from Caroline Kurtz, Dan Carreno, Hannah Carey, Kara Cromwell, Katie DeFusco, and Matt Herlihy. Our music is by Travis Yost. Um.